Chapter Twenty Seven of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Braid. Chapter Twenty Seven The Trist by the Bamboos. Meanwhile, Barrington had written the following letter The Club, Leckhart's Town, twenty ninth April. My dearest Honoria, after seeing you this morning I had an interview with your father, and I am sorry to tell you that he entirely refuses to sanction our engagement. He objects to me on the grounds that I am a well-born Englishman, that I am poor, and that injurious reports have been circulated in connection with my retirement from the guards. It is unnecessary for me to tell you that these rumours, which are, I believe, rife in Leckhart's town, have the most vague foundation. I do not pretend to be a saint, but I can truly assure you that there is nothing in my past career which reflects a shadow upon my honour or renders me unworthy of your love. Your father declares that he has other views for your future, that it is his wish you should marry an Australian who will assume his name and perpetuate his political reputation. He has forbidden me to enter his house under penalty of being kicked out of it. I have therefore no resource but to implore that you will meet me at least once again. Need I say that, till with your own lips you reject me, I will accept no dismissal? This I have told your father. I claim as my right that you grant me an interview. Be at the wicket-gate, which leads from your grounds into the botanical gardens, this evening as near nine o'clock as possible. I will add neither entreaties nor protestations. The most passionate expressions are bathos when coldly written. You must be convinced by this time of the depth of my love. All your impulses draw you towards me. Obey them, dearest, and you will be happy. Ever your own, Hardress Barrington. When Barrington had written the letter, he was puzzled to contrive for its safe and private conveyance to Miss Longleat's hands, in time for her to keep the appointment he had named. He carried it in his pocket as he wandered up and down King Street. And fortune favoured him so far that, Upon turning round by the principal draper's shop, he came suddenly face to face with Honoria, who was sitting alone in Lady Georgina Ogmering's carriage, while the latter executed some purchases within. Though she trembled with excitement as he approached, she would not lean forward or betray any sign of eagerness. He hurriedly placed the letter he had written in her hand. "'I have seen your father,' he whispered, "'and have been forbidden your house.' "'I know it,' she murmured. I have seen him also. And what is it to be? he asked with his eyes fixed anxiously upon her face. Are you going to give me up? She raised her head with a defiant gesture. I am not so fickle a woman. To love is to trust, whispered Barrington passionately, and you will do what I beg of you in this letter. I have asked you to meet me this evening. Trust me. You said that I should be your faith. Hush, said Honoria. Lady Georgina is coming. I will do what you wish. Lady Georgina emerged from the shop. She said a few gracious words to Barrington and gave the order to drive on. Her verbal promise spared Honoria any agonies of indecision. When, at sunset, she was dropped by Lady Georgina at the Bunyas and was able to read her letter in quiet, she never even questioned whether she should comply with her lover's demand. Of course she would go. Her direct defiance of her father's wishes removed any scruples upon the score of disobedience, 
and her newly born self-reliance, or rather, reliance upon another, and her scorn of conventionality made her blind to the shame of clandestine meeting. She found, upon entering the drawing-room, that her father had gone to his political dinner, and that her own guests, Cornelius Cathcart and Mr. Power, had already arrived. Honoria was unusually silent during the meal, and announced that she had a headache. It was half-past eight when they left the dining-room. "'My dear Aunt Pen,' said Honoria, pausing at the drawing-room door, and entirely disregarding the kind old lady's eagerness to hear particulars of the interview with the Premier, "'I stayed in there as long as I could, for it's all they are going to have of my company this evening. Good night, dear, and don't come to my room and disturb me. I am not in the mood for talking.' You shall hear all to-morrow. My love, said Mrs. Ferris, gulping down her disappointment, you are hot and feverish. I am afraid that talk with your father has upset you. Never mind, all will come right. If ever a man worshipped you, it's Mr. Barrington. Now go and lay yourself down between the cool sheets, and read a chapter in the Bible, and ask God to bless you. I doubt, my love, that you are as prayerful as you might be. Honoria smiled a little grimly, then entered her pretty bedroom which opened on to the garden and locked the inner door that communicated with the rest of the house. The French windows she must leave open. They had Venetian shutters that bolted on the inside. But she rang for the maid and told her that she was going to bed and did not wish to be disturbed. Then she wrapped herself in a long cloak and put on a little black hat that left her face all uncovered, too careless and too proud to attempt any further disguise. There was the chance that one or both of the gentlemen who were dining there that evening might be smoking in the veranda. And when nine o'clock struck, she stole cautiously across the lawn and into a belt of shrubbery which she skirted till she reached the bamboos that sheltered the wicket. She paused for a moment. The night was clear and moonless. Upon the Emu Point Ridge the lights twinkled like an irregular row of stars, while below the cliff lay the broad dark belt of the river. It was so still that she could hear plainly the ding-dong of the steamer's bells and the cries of the boatmen. Before her stretched the dim expanse of garden, with its long vistas of bunya-trees and mimosa and beds of azaleas and camellias and heavy odorous magnolias. On the other side of the bamboo hedge that bounded the premier's dwelling was an unfrequented walk, merging in a thicket of moraton bay fig-trees, pines and tall shivering bamboos. Here Honoria knew that they would probably be safe from interruption. She opened the gate, passed through, then relocked it and put the key into her pocket. Hardly had she emerged from the shadow of the hedge than a tall figure advanced, and Barrington, taking her hand, led her into the concealment of the grove. Now, alone with her lover, Honoria felt no fear, yet she drew back shrinkingly from his caresses, and, with a certain defiant pride, placed herself against the trunk of a fig-tree which faced the path. "'Come a little further away,' said Barrington. "'You may be seen by someone lurking about the gardens.' "'I am not ashamed to be recognized,' exclaimed Honoria. "'I would have all Leckart's town know that I have defied my father's injustice and cruelty, and that I am here to meet my lover. "'And what greater impropriety is there in talking to you in this garden than there was in our sitting by the lagoon at Kuralbin? "'My love!' said Barrington. At Kuralbin there were no ill-natured tongues to gossip. I admire your bravery, but I must shield you from the slightest breath of slander. 
Even in the dimness he could see that she flushed deeply. There, she said pettishly, you spoil my illusion. Do you not see that I am trying to make myself believe that I am not your slave, that I am doing the most simple and natural thing in the world? Mutinous still, said Barrington tenderly, as he led her into the deepest obscurity of the thicket and seated her upon a bench. Then he encircled her waist with his arm and drew her close to him. These nights are like those summer evenings by the lake at Kuralbin. Oh, that we were there now, away from prying eyes and meddling tongues. Are you cold, darling? No, feel my hands. They are burning. And my head is aching, and I should like to lie down and cry. My whole mind and body are in a state of feverish excitement. My love, your nerves are overstrained. Remember your declaration. You should be calm and at rest now. That I never shall be, never, as long as you are my master and I am your slave. Unless, indeed, we grow absolutely indifferent to each other, and that is what I fancy it will come to in time. Such violent delights have violent ends. Perhaps you will tire of me, or I of you, before the year is out which I have promised my father to wait. What year? asked Barrington, startled. My fortune does not become my own till I am twenty-one, and I have given my word to my father that I will not marry you before that time. Who knows what may happen? I shall be twenty on the seventh of next month. Thus there is a year and a week to wait. I cannot remain in suspense for so long, exclaimed Barrington. I cannot live without you. Your father's objections to me are unreasonable. Time will not soften them. Honoria, we must be married at once. No, said Honoria firmly. I must submit to you in most things, but I will not be ruled in this. I will keep a shred of liberty. Do you think that I am a monster, to go against my father without feeling a pang? I love him in my own way. I should feel myself a traitor if it were not that he is a traitor too. I would have sacrificed even you if only he had consented to break with Mrs. Valency, but he refused, and so we go different ways, perhaps both to destruction. You know that I have been warned against you, but I ask no questions. I do not insult you by doubting your motives. I do not even wish to know why you left the guards. You are a noble woman, said Barrington with his eyes upon the ground. But, he went on, in a hurried self-exculpatory manner, you need not hesitate to ask. You should hear the story, what there is to tell, if you wished. But you would not understand the world, my life. You must know that London men are not anchorites. I was no better than anyone else of my set, and no worse. I gambled, I got into debt. I was entangled with a woman whom I did not love. That will do, said Honoria. Let the past lie. I'll believe that you are neither saint nor sinner. What does it matter? Now talk to me about England, about your mother. Will she like me, or will she despise me for being a bullock driver's daughter? Tell me where we shall go when we are married. We shall travel, of course. What is the most beautiful thing that you will take me to see? She listened in silence while he described the scenes they should visit, the life they would lead, painting the future in the most attractive colouring that his imagination could furnish. Lover's talk, fragmentary and eloquent, broken by hand-clasping and caressings, but wearisome in repetition. I dare say that I should tire of it all, said Honoria at length. 
I should pine after the mountains, the wild forests, the old free life. I have read that wherever one's lot may be cast away from home, the longing for one's motherland intensifies with the years till it becomes pain. I should be unsatisfied. It is always so with me. First, there is the keen wishing to make someone love me or to feel some new sensation, then revulsion and distaste. What if even you were to become hackneyed? Oh, you need not smile. I am less afraid of you now. I find that I can play upon your feelings. Look at me. Can you see my features in this dim light? Barrington half turned, loosening his arm, though it still supported her as she reared herself back, facing him. The two pairs of eyes gazed into each other, hers dreamy and seductive, his bright and longing. At last Barrington exclaimed passionately, Honoria, don't, don't look at me in that way. Why? she asked, laughing softly and still gazing. Do you not understand? I love you and... She rose suddenly and folded her cloak round her. The moon is coming out, she said. I ought to go within. Oh, this hateful concealment! But time will pass and our love will be as bright as day, and then there will be no dimness, no mystery. I will kiss you, once, while it is dark. No, no, I did not mean it. There, you frighten me. No, I will not come again. I will never come again. Let me go. But before he released her, she had promised him another meeting. And not one, but many took place, always at the same spot under the bamboos at such hours as were convenient to Honoria to steal away from her father's guests. Her frank abandon bewildered Barrington's judgment, while it intoxicated his senses. He could not determine whether the absence of that maidenly reserve which he had been accustomed to associate with young ladies of the higher classes was the result of boldness or ignorance. And here was a flaw in his logic. No wonder that he generalized accordingly. There was in her manner no symptom of coyness to indicate how far she realized the danger of her position. Though she made no protests against the clandestine meetings for which he pleaded, and seemed completely mastered by the extraordinary fascination he exercised over her, it was impossible for him to calculate upon her moods. Upon one occasion she would be tender and cooing as a dove, upon another abrupt, cold, and almost savage in her repulse of his caresses. One night he waited vainly under the bamboos till nearly morning, in anxious expectation of her coming, venturing even when all the house was in darkness, to climb the wicket and tap gently at the Venetian shutters of her room, but without obtaining any response. He wrote her an impassioned letter, and upon the following day she came forth, white and cold, to hear his upbraidings. "'I wanted to see if I could resist you,' she said, when he reproached her. "'I knew that you were out there waiting and listening and probably cursing me. All the time that I was playing within doors, I felt that your will was drawing me towards you, and I set myself in opposition to it.' I said that I would see whether you could compel me. I shut my lips and defied you. I don't think that I could do it again. I could not have done it then if there had not been another influence at work. Oh, what a despicable creature I am! What is my love worth? Nothing, nothing. To be torn in two ways. It is shameful, it is degrading. I don't know whether I hate or love you most. You have been mesmerizing me. That's what it is. You have got the evil eye. 
You are like Margrave in the strange story. But you are stronger than I, and I could not have kept away from you tonight. No, not if Papa had held me. Tell me who was with you last night, asked Barrington hoarsely. It was Dyson Maddox, replied Honoria quite meekly. He has come back from Kurlbin, and Mrs. Ferris is going up soon. I think I shall go with her. Angela is ill. Angela ill? What ails her? exclaimed Barrington blankly. Angela ill, he repeated. An uneasy sense of guilt took hold of him, and all night he was haunted by Angela's pale, reproachful face. Dyson had been for a fortnight upon the Koorong. It was a longer absence than he had intended, but there were several reasons which made him just now prefer the obscurity of Barramunda to the bustling life of Leichardt's Town. Though he had manned himself for the sacrifice of his dearest hopes, he could not face it unflinchingly. Rumours of Miss Longleat's engagement, and of the Premier's opposition to the match, were rife upon the Koorong. Lord and Lady Dolph heard them, and, though they regretted untoward circumstances, were jubilant for the sake of their friend. Granny Deans heard them, and mumbled something about the crooked stick. Tom Dungy heard them, and, upon the strength of example, began seriously to consider his matrimonial intentions towards Miss McCutcheon. And Angela heard them, and drooped and withered, till her father's heart, not knowing any cause of evil, ached sorely for his darling. The evening of his return Dyson spent at the Bunyas in the company of Honoria and Mrs. Ferris. The meeting was an ordeal which he dreaded, and which he faced with something of the old courage that, in one of his exploring expeditions, when he had been wounded by a native spear, believed firmly to be poisoned, had made him pluck out the weapon and, without a word, pursue his course to the northern goal, which in his heart he did not expect to reach. "'I told you,' said Honoria, looking at him with her great star-like eyes, "'that when you came back again everything might be different with me. "'Everything is different.' "'During the evening she was restless and excited, "'sometimes silently attentive to some outward cause of distraction, "'sometimes talking feverishly and hurriedly as though to escape thought. "'At last she sat down to the piano "'and played a queer, wild waltz by Rubenstein. "'Suddenly she started up and laid her hand upon Maddox's arm. "'He was sitting a little behind her. "'Don't let me go out,' she said in a low, frightened voice. "'Keep me from going out.' "'What do you mean?' he asked in astonished tones. "'Why, surely you are not thinking of going out at this hour?' "'No, yes. "'I don't know what I was thinking of. "'All kinds of strange things. "'Let us play at cards. Bizik, whist. "'Aunt Pen will take the dummy.' End of chapter 27 Read by Celine Major.